Good morning. That's some really good sound. I need one of these in my classroom. That's the opening cheesy joke of the day. Mark that off the list. Here's another one for you. My man's got a Tarleton shirt on. I know God is here today. And I, I, uh, I'm really happy to hear that. I, I do have to thank Corey for, um, for being a, persuasive enough to convince Ridge to let me come in and speak to his church. Uh, so I do want to thank them. But without any further ado, let's just jump into this and let's run. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Open up your Bible if you don't have one. I've noticed we have them in the seat backs in front of you. Crack that thing open. Go to the table of contents. Top half is probably going to be Old Testament. Bottom half, it'll say New Testament. Find the fourth one there. That's called John. Go to that page. And if you flip to the right a little bit, you're going to find John chapter 4. If you're like I used to do in church, you go into the bulletin, you find where it says the, where the sermon's going to be, and you, you mark that. And, and really, I wasn't marking it because I was so eager to learn. I was marking it because I was going to read and see how many words we were going to go through, because uh, that meant we got to go eat lunch. Um, unfortunately, that's not all the verses we're going to do today. Uh, but we are going to start in John chapter 4, verse 28. As a teacher, as a teacher of uh, middle school students in particular, and they are very, very interesting humans, kind of, um, they make a lot of decisions, and a lot of decisions that leave me baffled. And so one of the things that, I, that I've really tried to start doing in my job as my career has grown is I try to find out what it is that motivates their decisions. student does something dramatic, we're going to address that issue at hand, but what I want to find out is, is what preceded that event. What was the motivating factor in, in their brain, or what should be a brain, that put them in that position? And that's kind of what we're, that's how we're going to approach today. That's what I want to look at today. If you, if you look in John chapter 4, hopefully you've had a chance to turn there, verse 28. It says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, and we're going to stop right there. And I'm sure some of us have read on, but, but what I want to ask and, and what I want to find the answer to today, what I think Jesus wants us to find the answer to today is, what is it that would motivate, what would persuade a woman to have a, wa- a jar of water with her in what is now present day pa- the Palestinian area, so hot, what would motivate her to leave that water and go into town and find people? And we find the answer to that is it's a series of puzzle pieces beginning in verse 6. So if you look ahead or if you flip back a page, we see uh, we're going to take this in a couple of sections of scripture and we want to find the pieces so that we can answer the question what would motivate a woman to leave her water run into town and find people and in verse 6 what we see is that Jacob's well was there so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour now when it says the sixth hour I used to think that meant six like 6 a.m. 6 p.m. something like that when, when we're referencing the sixth hour here, and John's referencing it in the, in the New Testament, what we're talking about is six hours after the sun comes up. So sometime-ish in the lunch hour. I don't know if they observe daylight savings time. I don't know what, what, what all that would have been. I don't know what time of year it was. But sometime-ish between 11 and 1. So middle of the day. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So what we see is Jesus has sat down about the middle of the day, and he engages, Jesus engages, the very next woman that shows up. And what we find out in verse 9, let's go down just a little bit more. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John puts in parentheses, because John's gospel gets spread through the Greeks, because it's written in Greek. 
And perhaps this reaches a region that's not quite familiar with the custom of the day, which coincidentally, in Central Texas 2017, I'm not quite familiar with the custom of the day when Jesus is sitting at this well. So I'm thankful John threw this in there. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's a pretty harsh statement. That's not just like when I was in high school at Troy, and we didn't really enjoy being around people from Academy. No offense, I know that's like home turf right now, but let, we, let's call spades spades. That's how life works. Um, it's, it, it's much more fierce than that. It's not Temple Belton. It's not Salado Rogers. It's Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We don't interact with one another. I don't make space for you at the well. I make space from you at the well. And when I see that you dip your bucket into the well, I'm going to find a different well because we have no dealings with you. So Jesus Jesus engages her, and she just kind of throws up a little protective barrier here. And she's like, hey, just in case you're confused on this thing, as though Jesus would ever be confused, I am a woman from Samaria, and you are obviously a man who is Jewish, right? And so what Jesus does is he has the perfect response in verse 10. He just keeps on going. And thank God that he did that. He's done that in my life, and he's done that in the lives of many. I throw up little walls. It's like, hey, Jesus, you're Jewish. I'm Samaritan. And he's like, cool, let's keep going. So verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus sits down at a well. The very next person that shows up, he engages them. It happens to be a woman from Samaria. She's shown up in the middle of the day, and she kind of pushes him to the side. tries to put a little social distance between the two of them. And Jesus continues to pursue her. And, 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 And when I say pursue, I mean he continues to engage her. But the manner in which he engages her has to blow her mind right now. Because he's not just making small talk. What Jesus does in verse 10, if you missed it, Jesus just told a Samaritan woman, there's a gift from God and it's available to you today and I'm trying to give you this gift from God. So every social structure and order of the day that says, I don't get to encounter with you, that she tried to put up there, Jesus ran straight through all that just now and says, no, there's a gift from God and I have it available for you today. So let's see how she responds, right? The God of the universe shows up, I'm a Samaritan, and I've got a Jewish man offering a gift from God, sign me up, right? No, she does actually what I do oftentimes. And let's read how she responds to Jesus saying, I've got a gift from God available to you today. In verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? The woman just looked at the God of the universe and granted, she doesn't know who he is. She just knows he's a Jewish man. But a Jewish man who just crossed every social structure and barricade that exists in her day and said, there's a gift from God available to you today and I'm here to bring it. She looked him square in the face and said, where's your rope and where's your bucket? The well is deep. Verse 12, uh, I'll summarize verse 12 for you. It's a deep well. And let's say Jesus is tall for the day, so he's all of six feet. And if you've lived as a male Brady, you know that six feet is tall. And, and that's, that's, that's me. I know six feet tall. Let's say Jesus is tall, and so he's got your average six-foot wingspan. So end-to-end, six feet. And she's like, you're not going to reach down and scoop that stuff up. Where's your rope? Where's your bucket? A little cynicism sinks in at this moment, right? You said that you've got a gift from God available to me. You don't have a rope and a bucket. Jesus says to, to me, he said to, to my wife before, and, and she was gracious enough to let me wrestle through stuff, but it's two days before the birth of our first son, or the due date actually, it ended up being a week and two days. Um, we get a phone call from a person at church, hey, your name came up in a committee meeting, we would like y'all to serve in this capacity. You don't have, I don't have a rope and a bucket, man, I can't do this. God was patient, God was gracious with me though. 
And then as we go on, let's, let's move on down to 13 and 14. I told y'all we were going to run, yes? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So Jesus, he continues to pursue. Right? He, he throws out there one, one moment of engagement, she pushes back. I'm Samaritan, you're Jewish. He throws out another moment of engagement, she pushes back. Where's your rope? Where's your bucket? Jesus, what's, you're, you're not pragmatic enough for me. You don't understand the situations, or I trust that you understand the situations, but clearly what you're asking me to do does not take into account the situations of my life. Here are the reasons why I can't do these things. And Jesus once again engages in 13 and 14, but he does this time hit a chord that resonates with her. Whenever he mentions that, that the water that I'm offering you, you'll never have to drink again, let's read her verse in 15. Because remember, we've been asked the question, we're answering the question, what motivates a woman to leave her water in a hot region of the world? And what we now know is in the middle of the day, so we'll call it a hot time of the day, what motivates a woman to leave that, run into town, and talk to people? Verse 15, we get, a little, we get a big piece of this puzzle that we're trying to answer. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. She's eager. And while she's eager, we've been getting crumbs of information, clues that lead to why it is that she's eager to find out about this. I really want you to hone in on the part that says, or have to come here to draw water. You see, the reason that this woman showed up in the sixth hour about noontime, instead of in the first or second hour, 7 or 8 a.m. The reason she showed up when it's hot instead of when it's cold, the reason she showed up alone instead of when what was custom of the time for all of the women of the community to show up to the well. Bunch of people around, many hands make light work, yes? Everybody got the rope, everybody's got a bucket. I fill my jar up, I got a quarter gallon left. Sally, bring your bucket, bring your jar over here, let me pour that extra quarter gallon in. I've saved Sally some trouble. This woman's already acknowledged it's a long, long, deep well, which means I've got a long, long rope. And if anybody's ever pulled water with rope, we know anything more than about from the floor to my waist, it's heavy, right? We've got a window into why she is choosing to not be there. Anyone who's ever unfortunately had the experience of walking around in shame, I know what that feels like. I've been there. I've lived it. Many of us have lived it. Many of us may be living it right now. Anytime I walk around with shame in my life, and other people do, we do what this woman does, and that's very simple. We structure our day so that we do not have to engage that which reminds us of our shame. The woman chose to go to the well at a time that she would not encounter others. She made life more difficult on herself. She had to work in the heat of the day instead of the cool of the day. She had to work alone instead of with people. But whenever I work alone, I don't have to encounter other people. And I'm not reminded of the thing that caused me to come here in the middle of the day. So when the God of the universe, and granted she doesn't know it's him yet, but she's getting a little idea. When the God of the universe looks at her and he says, you're never going to have to drink water again, her mind goes straight to, I get to be free from shame. I don't ever have to come to the well again ever and if you dangle that nugget in front of a person that they can be free from shame you would be surprised at what people are willing to do and oftentimes it's the person that dangles it in the correct way that leads people off into an even deeper pit but praise god the one that she encountered today was not someone offering her a a, a road to destruction but it was it was the god of the universe offering her real truth and so let's keep going on and see what happens how do do we go from from her 
looking at this in the physical to Jesus giving her the real eternal truth. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, for if you you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. We get another big piece of the puzzle. 15, we got a little bit of insight. She's kind of operating in shame and she wants to avoid it the rest of her life. 16, we get get the fullness of what it is that has caused that shame. But more importantly, if you're a Christian here today, we get something even bigger. We get to see our Savior, our Lord, the one that we have professed is in charge of our life, engaging a person who operates in shame, a person he's not even supposed to engage in because in the customs of the day he would have been above her. But our Savior engages her. He engages her in the truth because if it comes to my friends, a lot of times I want to tell you about Jesus, but I don't want to tell you about the thing that's standing between you and Jesus. But not only does he engage her with the truth, he gently engages her in the truth. And he does it with love, which is what Paul commands the church in Ephesus and commands us as Christians to do, to speak the truth in love. He does it with love. It's not a point in the sermon, but it's got to be a point in my life that whenever I engage people and when I am encountering people in the truth, I need to do so gently and with love. And if I cannot do so gently and with love, then I need to not engage them because my heart has got to get healed. Let's keep going. Verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's picking up what he's putting down finally. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. All right, you approach me as a, as a Samaritan woman. Okay, that's one barrier. All right, you, you clearly know who I am. And you know about my life. That's another barrier. And you've been telling me that you have a gift from God. I'm still just a little bit skeptic here, though. This makes sense. This is often how people come to Jesus. It's just a peeling back of layer after layer of skepticism and lie that we've built our life on. But what she does, see, she's in Samaria, and they worship God on one mountain. And in Jerusalem, they worship God on another mountain. And in verse 19 and in verse 20, as she begins to understand who Jesus is and that he actually is from God, she's starting to dig to find out if this gift that he's offering her, she's actually eligible for. Because in the eyes of the Jewish customs in first century A.D., because she's Samaritan, she's not eligible for them, and she knows it. So she's thrown out another layer of questions. Because oftentimes people's question to you is never their real question. They offer a series of safe weather balloons just to see how you respond. And this is a safe weather balloon. I'm not going to jump in if it turns out I wasn't eligible from the beginning. Jesus, I worship on this mountain. They say worship on that mountain. Which is it? What mountain? Am I even eligible? Because I go to this mountain every Friday afternoon. Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 22. I apologize. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, the one in Samaria, nor in Jerusalem, the other mountain, will you worship the Father. That's a little different than I'm used to. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We, speaking to Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's not raising the Jewish people to a different level right there. What he's doing is he's pointing to himself. Salvation is from him. He is the only, all, he's the only route through, to salvation. 
He's pointing to himself right there. Salvation is from the Jews. Pick it up in 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let me remind us once again, we are asking the question, what would motivate a woman in the Middle East, in the middle of the day, to leave water and go run into town? Jesus answers her questions from verse 21 and 22, and what he tells her in answering these questions is it's spirit and truth. Your mountain doesn't matter. Your people don't matter. Your heart matters. It says God is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. What he just told her is these are your reservations, and I'm telling you not only are you eligible, it's available. I'm still offering it to you. And Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, whose well we're sitting at, just wants somebody to worship him in spirit and truth. He doesn't care what mountain you're sitting in. He doesn't care that you're going to this mountain. He doesn't care if you're going up to Jerusalem. He wants you to worship him in spirit and truth. And when he's talking about spirit and truth, he's talking about your heart. Are you, are you being honest before God in your heart? Truth. And are you worshiping with all of your being? Are you giving him the direction of your life? Spirit. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 25 and 26, we finally get the last piece of the puzzle to what motivates this woman to take off, leave her water behind, and go find people. 25 and 26, this is her last little balloon that she, she throws up there, and this is the one closest to her heart. It says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. All right, Jesus, I'm going to take this. I kind of believe you, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to put this in my back pocket. When I get home, I'm going to pull out my computer, and I'm going to look up on Samaria Google when this Messiah is coming, because that's the one that's going to have all these answers. But you've answered a lot, and thank you. So when that Messiah comes, he's going to tell me if this is true. And when he tells me this is true, I know it's true. Because the Messiah, both you agree as a Jewish man, and we agree as Samaritans, is the one that God is sending to reveal absolutely everything. So in the very next verse, in verse 26, when this Jewish man who's, who's too good to even talk to her, if we're obeying the customs of the day, this Jewish man who knows so much about God, this rabbi, a rabbi who's not even supposed to engage in conversation with a woman in public because it would imply that his mind is no longer on God and that his mind's in, engaged in conversation with it and his wife. This would even apply to as well. This person that's not supposed to talk to her who's been telling her all these things looks at her and her final declaration, which is when the Messiah tells me this, I know it's true. And he looks at her and he says, I who speak to you am he. Boom. Mic drop. Every question answered. Every reservation thrown aside. Every barrier knocked down. You came here with a set of questions you didn't know you had, but we've been, drawing them with, we've been drawing them out of your heart. As you've seen that encountering Jesus is a safe encounter, you're, you can be here, you can be you, and he's not going to reject you. As you see each of these things happen, he just keeps pulling more and more out of her heart. And then he's, he answers it, and he's like, I'm him. It's me. The one you've been saving this part of your heart for, it's me. Sitting right here. Thanks for the water in the beginning. Now we get to our first point of the sermon. Verse 28. I'm not even kidding. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, what's our first point? This woman has a story. She has a moment with Jesus. The Bible calls this, and it's one of the two things that it says will make it to, that, that will sustain us throughout the end. The Bible calls this our testimony. She has a testimony. You see, the first requisite, the requisite for salvation, entrance into eternal life with Jesus, 
being taken out of this world and putting in the next world in union with Christ is you got to have a testimony. What's the testimony? It's very simple. Uh, two, of the men that, two of the men that were a tremendous influence on my wife, Crystal Watts, Corey, the Tanners, Kyle and Macy, who I will be judging them for not being here because I've known them for a long time, um, and myself, two of them used to, co- to, to tell it to us this way. Um, you got to have a moment. There has to be a moment in your personal narrative, in your historical past that you can point to, much like this woman can point to verse 6 through 26, that says it was at that moment that I became a follower of Jesus. There's no class that gets you this. There is no family heritage that gets you this. There is no last name. There is no level of respect for God. And, it, and that one, I know, seems kind of, uh, Andy, I don't know. No, read John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, because Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, approaches Jesus and calls him rabbi. The greatest honor that he can give him in that moment, verbally. And Jesus tells him then, that's still in enough, man. There's nothing that you can do that will get you into, into salvation. There's no class that we can offer or any church that can offer that that any church can offer that will get you into heaven. There has to be a moment. There has to be a moment in your storied past that you can point to and say, that was when I began following Jesus. If you have it, you have salvation. And if you don't, that's okay right now, but we've got to get that squared up. Because there's, there's, a grain of, there's a, an hourglass running somewhere, and somewhere is that last grain of sand. And we, gotta, we, we have to beat that. There's no way around it. If you don't have the moment, you don't have salvation. If you have the moment, praise God, you've got salvation. But let's go and find out what our next point is. Read with me in verse 29 and 30. So she left her jar. She went away into town and she said to the people, okay, Andy, I can't go talk to people about Jesus. I can't tell them about this. I'm not smart enough. I've not been trained enough. I don't know enough about the Bible. And I don't really have good words. Like I'm not very articulate. Kind of, you know, kind of like what Moses did with the burning bush. He said, I stutter. I don't talk well. So let's see the profound knowledge that this woman shares with her town. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. It's very basic. It's very simple. Can this be the Christ? Let's go ahead and read verse 30 while we're at it. They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's skip on down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Notice it's not a very profound testimony. You've got to have a moment. You've got to have a testimony. That's, that's step one. That's, that's, everything is off of that. But one of the things that I find to be a barrier in my life and sharing the gospel with others and sharing Jesus with others and what I found to be a barrier in the lives of either the students that I've led in university ministry or the adults that my wife and I get to work with right now in, in our young singles ministry is that we don't feel confident that we know enough. And I get that. I've not been trained. I don't have very much memorized. Look, you spend 10 minutes on the phone with my, with my great uncle Joel like I did on Friday. He's going res- to recite scripture and verse every third word because it's who he is and what's in a man comes out of him. And that's very intimidating for me. It's like I can never witness to anyone. I'm not at Joel's level. So what we do in our mind if, if we've been Christians for 10 minutes is we look at who we think is the most holy person in our life. And we say, I am not whomever that person is. For Andy Brady, that's Joel Dawson. For you, it could be someone else. For a youth, it would make sense for it to be Watts. For a college student, it would make sense for it to be Corey or Crystal. For any member of the church, it would make sense for it to be Ridge. But we look at them, we're like, I'm not that person, I can't share anything. But if this whole thing is about me surrendering my life to Christ, that's the moment, right? 
I acknowledge that I'm inadequate and he is everything, and so I'm going to trust him with the direction and leadership of my life, then that means i got to do what he tells me. And I know that part of this bit is that I get so excited about what he's done and what he's redeemed me from that I've got to go tell people, and then like this fear sets in. This woman's not held back by fear, and praise God she's not because we get to learn from it. She shares her testimony. What's your testimony? It's a very simple three-part story, and all you got to do is remember. You don't even have to be able to read. you got to be able to remember. Who were you before you met Jesus? Keep that the shortest part. Don't sensationalize it. Don't dr- dramatize it. Don't, don't feel like you don't have a good one because it's not a horror story. Praise God when it's not a horror story. But praise God when it is because it takes the same power and the same blood from Jesus to make the moment. But it's the shortest part because the, the part of my testimony that matters is the last two. What happened when I engaged Jesus? When he engaged me? And what has he done in my life since? If the call in Ephesians 4.11 is who God, gave, who God gives us in the church, and in Ephesians 4.12, Paul tells the church in Ephesus the reason that he gave the people to the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the church, the body of Christ. Then I can't stand up here today talk about testimony and not tell you how to give one. Because then I'm failing to equip you. Who were you? It's the smallest part. You want to have a one, a three, and a five-minute testimony. If you get one minute, you spend 15 seconds on who you were before Jesus. If you got three minutes, you spend 45 seconds. And if you got five minutes, you spend a minute 15. It's the smallest part. And if you know them real well, you don't even got to say it because she doesn't say it. Because every person in this town knew who she was. Then you talk about, for the rest of the time, how you encountered Jesus and what he's done for you since. My quick one-minute testimony. I got saved when I was seven years old. It was real. It took. You know what I'm saying? I got saved, but then that left a whole lot of life for me to do in a whole lot of sinning. And it happens. My teenage years, I was caught between two different worlds. A world that was pursuing Jesus with all they had and a world that had nothing to do with Jesus. And there were a lot of people in my life pulling me with wisdom to this direction and a lot of people without wisdom, pulling me to this direction. And so I was really just a teenager trying to be validated by a whole lot of different things and kind of wandering. At 19 years old, I was taken on a mission trip to Romania. Didn't really sign up for it. I was taken on, and it changed my life. Because all the things that these people had been telling me for all those years, I saw in person and I saw in the flesh. And I saw what it meant. It wasn't the poverty of the region, which was heartbreaking. It wasn't the generosity of the people, which was humbling. It was who Jesus was to every person. Who his word said he was in the way that that fleshes out that changed the trajectory of my life and has made it so that the overarching theme since that moment has been, I never want to leave his presence again. That's my testimony. There's nothing profound. It's just my story. There's not really a whole lot profound in the words that this woman offers. But because the people know her, and because we as humans respond to recommendations and reviews from people, I read, uh, I read recently that 90% of people make big financial decisions based on the recommendations of others, of which 80% use online reviews from strangers in evaluating something else. I know people, they know me. Whenever I make a review or a recommendation of them, they respond. When Corey moved here, I told him about 8,000 times, he's got to go get a burger at Jody's. <laughs> I, got, I did better than that. I told him which Jody's to go to. And I'm not going to tell you because that's divisive like Academy and Troy. All right? But 
people listen to our views and recommendations. You've got to have a testimony. You've got to share your testimony. And when you share your testimony, people respond. Let's go back to the text. I've been away from it too long. So when the Samaritans came to him, verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, this is, this is really this is beautiful. They said to the woman, it's no longer because what you have said that we believe. But there was a point when it was. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. you got to have a testimony. you got to share your testimony. People are going to respond to that testimony. And then what they do after that is no longer between you and them. It's between them and God. I told you there's a few barriers that I've seen in, in witnessing and in evangelizing and in sharing with people. One of those is I felt like I'm not articulate. I'm not intelligent enough. I don't have enough scripture memorized. All I've got to have is a testimony. The other one is, what if people reject me? Right? Like, that's real. We care about what people think. I wish we didn't. It's what's made this, of all the times I've gotten to speak, been the most difficult to prepare for. Because over there and over there are family and friends that I grew up with. We care what people think. We wish we didn't, but it's true. But what we have to remember is there comes a point where I make my recommendation, I make my review, I share my testimony. People try it out. But after that moment, it's between them and God. They're not rejecting Andy. They're rejecting Jesus. They're not accepting Andy as Savior. They're accepting Jesus as Savior. Don't be discouraged by what may happen in their response because it's not between you and them, it's between them and Jesus. God puts it this way in Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 16, going through verse 19. He, refers to, he would refer to what we are as the watchman. He's placed us as a watchman on the tower and we're to warn the people. And he says, look, if you don't warn them, and I've told you to warn them, their blood is on your hands because you didn't warn them. That's scary. This is a passage that for like seven years now has, has truly gripped my soul. But then he says in verse 19, but if you do warn them and they choose not to turn back, that's on them. If I tell you to warn them and you don't, it's on you. But if I tell you to warn them and you do, whatever happens next is on them. That's how God puts it when he's declaring this to the prophet. So point number one, you've got to have a testimony. You've got to have a moment. If you don't have one, we've got to square it up. Point number two, you've got to share your testimony. And you'll watch people respond because we care about the stories that other people have. It's why stories are probably the primary form of communication from the beginning of time from one human to another. And point three, let's look back. I, have, I know I've skipped a lot of verses. I didn't forget it. It's structured that way. Look at 27 real quick. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek and why are you talking with her? We give the disciples a lot of grief for doing what seems like obvious dumb things. I teach middle school students. I understand that actually. But this time, the disciples don't do the dumb thing. They do the smart thing, and they get out of the way of what Jesus is saying. All those customs that were holding her back in the beginning are true for the disciples. Peter has proven that he is an eager man when it comes to protecting his Savior. But in this moment, he sits back, and they wait and watch, and they give God an opportunity to do his work. Why does that matter? It matters because what happens in 31. So she takes off in 28, and I imagine somebody's in the back going, Hey, Pete, she left her water. And Pete's probably like, dude, you need to shut up because there's a point coming right now where Jesus is going to explain something and I'm not sure what it is, but I can't miss it. So 28, or I'm sorry, 31 we see, meanwhile the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Because this is why they were gone to begin with. He sent them into town to go grab him a McDonald's and bring it back. Actually, they grabbed a Jody Burger if we're going with the theme today. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did somebody slip in a Shep's brisket sandwich when we were gone? 
And Jesus points to him and he says, No, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. They're looking in a barren land and they're probably like, Okay, clearly he's not talking about what we actually see. Let's, turn, let's, let's start thinking spiritual here. Already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. I think of my students that I had in Lingleville whose dad ran a farming company, but they didn't own any land. They would just drive up to Kansas every summer, harvest everything that they didn't plant, they didn't tend to. They had nothing to do with the growth. They were just there to harvest. And everybody got paid. And everybody rejoiced together, right? So that's what I'm thinking about when he's saying this. Verse 37, For here the saying holds true, One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap. What does that have to do with have a testimony, share your testimony? It, comes, it brings us to our third point. You've got to grow your testimony. See, the ministry that Jesus had with his disciples, it wasn't just that they got the best stories, because they did. It wasn't just that they spent the most time with him, because they did. It's that they were the group that he was training being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, there's, there's like a series of stages here. You have your testimony. You have your moment. And if you don't, you're not, in, you're not in the family yet, but we'll get you there. And then you're like the Samaritans in the town, and you sit at the well for two days, and you listen, and you learn. And then there's a moment that you get into training. John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I'm sorry, John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. What started this whole journey is they were in Judea, and John chapter 4, verse 1 says that they were baptized, Jesus was baptizing more than John was. And John 2 throws this little qualifier, or 4 2, throws this qualifier. Well, not Jesus, it was his disciples that were doing the baptizing in his name. The way that Jesus structured his ministry at the time, and uh, Robert Coleman does a tremendous job in a very tiny book called The Master Plan of Evangelism in explaining this. The way that he structured it is the way that Paul structured it is the way that the whole New Testament church is structured. Jesus is the head. He's the only way to salvation. He's the one calling the shots. That's what it means to get saved is that I let him call my shots. But the whole point of the church, the whole point of his disciples is so that he can equip them, give them tools so that they then go and do the work of the ministry. Because you had a whole town, and I don't care if that town was the size of Temple, Harker Heights, or Heidenheimer, it's really hard for one man to minister to a town full of people for two straight days at a water well. Pragmatically speaking, yes, Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants, but we have evidence all over the place in scriptures that what Jesus really wants to do is he wants to equip his saints to do the work of ministry, the building up of the church, the body of Christ. You have a testimony. You share your testimony and people respond. It's as simple as remembering. And then you grow your testimony. Because over the course of life, you can become what my, my former head coach, Coach Mack, used to say. You can become a player. And there was no greater compliment that I could have ever earned in my time at Troy High School than to hear, I'm a player. Because being a player in this squad simply means that when people come, you've been equipped to know how to minister to them. We do that by being part of a tribe. We get involved in a church. If you don't have a church home, you've got to square that up. You've got to button it down. And, we, and, and being a part of a church doesn't just mean we show up on Sunday. Praise God we show up on Sunday. I am not minimizing that. That is a massive, massive step that we praise God and give him glory for. But if you want to be a player, if you don't just want your picture in the yearbook, but you want to have memories that one day you can tell your son until he is tired of hearing those memories, i got a son. And i got a couple memories. You got to get into some training. I believe here at Memorial we call those connect groups, yes? And we do discipleship and we do Sunday school. All those were originally created with the aim of equipping the saints, like Paul declares in Ephesians 
And if you're not a part of that, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're not getting to be a player. And you're missing out. It's a very basic one, two, three structure that Jesus sets out for us here. You've got to have a testimony. You need to share your testimony. Don't make it more complicated than it is. And then you need to grow your testimony. Because as you become a player, you get more testimonies and you get more stories. You play in one game, you got stories for one game. You play in ten games, you got stories from ten games. Picking up what I'm putting down here? You want to practice declaring your testimony. Sometimes you just got to stand in front of a mirror and talk for one minute. Get it out of your system. Fathers, mothers, it's incredibly important that your children know your testimony. I know my dad's testimony. I heard it. I heard it when I was a teenager specifically. And it's carried me through different times. And because I happened to live in his house as a child growing up with him and my mom, and we happen to still have a good relationship, I've seen his testimony grow and what God's done in his life. And you best believe that if God tells you to pick up your family, move to a barren land north of the Red River, you're going to remember the time that God told my dad to pick up his family and move from the beautiful flat earth of West Texas and to come down to Central Texas. You kind of got an idea, hey, I can do this. I'm going to close this out real quick, but please don't tune me out. You got to have a moment. And if you don't, when the band comes up here and plays in a minute, you need to come down here. You need to talk to Watts. You need to talk to Corey. And let's get that squared up. If you don't have a moment, today's the day you got to take care of it. We don't just get one moment, though. If we've walked away from Jesus, we've been saved. You never lose that salvation, ever, ever. But maybe you got to return to Jesus today. You need to add a story. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 alludes to this. And Paul's like, don't presume upon the patience of God, which is designed to lead you to repentance. What that means is, God, look, you've been wandering. Okay. But God hasn't smited you yet because he's waiting on you to come back. So come back. Well, how do I know when I get to come back? Well, I'm telling you right now, come back. Come back. Let's nail down another moment of, of your testimony here. You don't get resaved again. You're just recommitting got a testimony you've been sharing the testimony you need to grow your testimony what is it that you got to decide today what is it that you've got to resolve today in this room before God that says I get to I will leave here changed growing my testimony the men that had this influence on the people I listed earlier the men that really shaped us they challenged us with that week after week after week and I knew the moment that it was coming and I could say it with them and if I was being cynical I would have tuned it out but praise God he kept me from being cynical and and it was very simple it's, what do you have to do to, today to leave here changed not because I'm a great speaker I'm not it's math like we get to talk in middle school math I am all over that buddy but what it is is it's the power of God which is one of two things that we know that will never ever ever return void It's usually a feeling in the gut somewhere. It's a memory that we try to push back, but it keeps coming up. Those are the things that we want to address with God today. What do you got to do to leave here change? I'm going to pray us out. The band's going to come up. Corey and Watts are going to be here. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you that you love us enough that we throw up barricade after barricade after barricade, and you pursue, you pursue, you pursue. You, you confront what's between us, but you do it gently and you do it lovingly. You remove the shame from our lives for eternity. And you love us still. That it doesn't matter what mountain we go to. It matters that we come to you and worship in spirit and truth. And then we walk to your mountain and we worship you there. I thank you for the people that have been faithful to share with me the testimony of their life before. 
I pray that those here who don't have one would find one today. I pray that those here who have one would be able to articulate and share it this week. I pray that you would give us no rest until we share our testimony. And I pray that where we have failed to grow our testimony, that you would engage our heart and you would place people in our path that continue to point us to how it is that we're going to grow that testimony with you. And that again, you give us no rest until we are obedient in this action. We love you and we praise you and it's in your name. Amen.